In a year of pandemics and protests, so many of us find ourselves reckoning with old ghosts. Inheritances we've lived with all of our lives, but have thus far been able to put off examining too closely. Whether that's the inheritance of capitalism or white supremacy, or of family histories and relationships, being inside and being slowed down has given us time to reflect, to remember, and reckon with our language and our culture. We are all forced to look at ourselves and our surroundings anew. How are we to make sense of the beauty, the pain, the overwhelming sense of loss and of powerlessness? This is what the Pakistani writer Fatima Bhutto has done all of her life, making sense of her many inheritances, a powerful political legacy, both generative and dark, at once both painful and powerful, but also her life of exile with a father who loved and raised her dearly and was gunned down by the police. She found a way to break through her sorrow and confusion by creating language to eulogize the dead, to frame the unframable. But more than that, she's found a way to make sense of the senseless inheritances of violence and politicized cultural artifacts that enshrine not just her life, but the lives of the countless whose world is shaped by the militant politics and religious cultures of Pakistan. The last time I saw Fatima was in November of 2012, we sat in the 20,000-volume library of her grandfather, the late Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, in the famous home on 70 Clifton Road in Karachi, Pakistan. The books, photographs, and plaques all intimated a portrait of a man who dreamed of a collective free future, not just for Pakistan, but for the global South. His efforts were cut short when a CIA-backed military coup overthrew the democratically elected Bhutto in 1977. Bhutto's dream experienced its first death when in 1979 he was hanged, three years before Fatima Bhutto was born. When she was three, her uncle Shah Nawaz was poisoned. At 14, her father Murtaza Bhutto was gunned down in the driveway of that house that still holds her grandfather's library. And of course, some 20 years after that, her aunt Benazir Bhutto former Prime Minister of Pakistan, was assassinated. Fatima's early years were spent in exile in Damascus. And when she later returned to Karachi, she moved into the home of her grandfather. Her first publication, a collection of poetry, was published the year of her father's murder, when she was only 15. Her first major book came 12 years later, a memoir about her father and her family titled Songs of Blood and Sword. Fatima has since published two novels, The Shadow of the Crescent Moon and her latest, The Runaways, as well as many articles of journalism, including the book titled New Kings of the World, which investigates the intersection of culture and geopolitics. Throughout her life, Fatima Bhutto has lived in the shadow of a powerful and bloody political dynasty, but vowed early on to never take a literal political stage herself. Rather, she has sufficed herself to live as a figure in the corner, thinking her dangerous thoughts, writing her dangerous books. As a result, Fatima Bhutto is a person today whose language, in whichever medium her pen chooses, 
serves to contain the raw emotion and power of someone catapulted by this unbelievable history that precedes her. This is American Submitter. I'm Imran Ali Malik. I wanted to just kind of begin where we are. You know, I'm calling from Berkeley, California. We're in our third month of quarantine. The nation in the last month has erupted in protests that have been met with near military force. There's a resurgence of political consciousness, it feels. Politics and violence have marked your life from the very beginning. And instead of shying away from politics, which you could have, you made a virtue of trying to understand it, analyze it, and write about it. Um, In your work, you draw out the links between politics and culture. And you're also a bit of a nomad. uh, And although your studies have been primarily through the American system, you have a far more global view of things than most of us. So I was hoping you could tell us how you've been viewing things from your own perspective these past few months. Mm. Well, I, I really don't think anyone has the luxury not to invest themselves in politics and not to engage in politics. And that's really how I always saw my own position. But I, I ultimately, as somebody who was affected by violence, by police violence, by state violence, um, and and by the turbulence of my country, I, I understood or I was forced to understand that I didn't have a choice not to care. I didn't have a choice not to be political. And I, and I do think everything we see around us today um, aff- affirms that in so many ways. You know, it's incredible that this virus would hit at exactly the time when so many countries um, were pushing these separatist, xenophobic ideas. You know, all these people winning elections were people saying foreigners out, you know, Locals in, we're not going to allow migrants, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that. And then you get a virus that affects everyone on earth, that moves with no respect to borders and your walls and your visas and your um, your myopic ways of deciding who belongs where. So I think that's been quite fascinating to see. It really enforces the point that I've always believed is that we can't live lives in silos where you know, the West can thrive um, at the cost of the rest of us. They can't. And and this virus has shown very clearly that if we are to survive COVID-19, we'll only be able to do it if everyone is given a chance to survive, if everyone is given the same access to health care, to care, to protection, um, to all these measures. It just it can't be limited to this vaunted few that so many things have been limited to all this time. It seems like you're... You're looking at this from from your lens of being a poet and a writer, and, and you're seeing the, the lyricism in the situation. You see all these things as connected, politics, culture, art, uh, which can be hard to do. But I do think they are connected. I mean, I think we're speaking in the aftermath of President Trump's Tulsa rally and um, the fact that it was, you know, this TikTok generation and K-pop fans that worked to subvert the rally. Um, you know, that what do, what does K-pop have to do with politics? And the answer <laughs> apparently is quite a bit, actually, because you can't separate culture from politics or politics from art or um, 
you know, there's no there's no cleave between generations and, and how they wish to engage. I think that's I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see that. I'm happy to see that. I do want to get more into that later. I wanted to start actually to your point um, that, you know, the democratic U.S. is trending towards fascism, the democracy that is India is trending towards fascism, United Kingdom, the entire world seems to be going in this direction. And with that in mind, I actually wanted to ask you to reflect on your on your grandfather, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who he was, what he represented in terms of his political vision and in the enthusiasm of that time, which was nation building and grassroots political movements. Hmm. Well, he was he was part of the generation that was coming out of the shadow of a brutal and degrading colonization. I mean, I say coming out of the shadow, we've never left the shadow, but he was of that generation, um, you know, the generation, uh, of course, that saw Nehru across the border, um, that saw figures like Kwame Nkrumah in Africa, that, that believed that the global South had a, a right to a dignified, free future. And one of the things that always struck me um, about that period was how they understood so deeply what I think we still struggle to understand, which is that all these battles are connected. So in the first manifesto of the Pakistan People's Party, which was written you know, in the late 60s, um, they addressed the Vietnam War and affirmed their solidarity with, with the people of Vietnam against um, against their occupiers. I think that's quite profound, and, and I think it speaks to what that generation en- envisaged. Of course, they made mistakes, and of course, um, beyond the mistakes, they were simply, I think, too threatening. They were not allowed to, to continue. They were not allowed to live long enough to see their visions and their experiments, those wild experiments, beautiful experiments, come to f- fruition. But I think that period of my grandfather's history, well, I mean, I don't see it in Pakistan anymore. And I'm not sure you see very much of uh, Nehru's India anymore next door either. Certainly you see great efforts to dismantle Nehru's India and one hopes against hope that whatever seeds that generation planted, um, I don't know, that they remain somewhere in the soil. I wanted to go back to that time and really your imagination of that time from a personal perspective, because last time we met actually in person was in your in your home, in your grandfather's home, in his library. And uh, you showed me some of his documents. You've lived amongst this legacy. He was executed three years before you were born. It was such a different promise that Pakistan could be and the idea of what even Islam was to the Pakistanis changed with the dictator that took power right after that. So I wanted to talk about that where from the perspective of what was his vision for Pakistan in terms of global politics and also as a scholar of the region you studied South Asian politics uh, at SOAS. And, but tell us about it also from the personal perspective, being amongst his shadow, his writings, the good of it, not so much the violence and everything that came later, but just the promise of who that man was. 
Well, he, um, you know, the original slogans of, of the Pakistan People's Party that my um, grandfather led, you know, its motto was democracy is our polity, socialism is our economy, Islam is our faith, all power to the people. You know, and these things sound incredibly romantic when you hear them now. They do, they do sound as though they come from another, another period. And his vision was very tied up, I think, to the politics of his time, to coming out of um, a country that had been suppressed in, in every single possible way where its people were not allowed to learn in their own language, you know, all across um, the British Raj. And English was the language of instruction. It's, it still is because of a minute on education written in the 1800s. I mean, in, I think it's 1836 or something like that, um, where an Englishman, Thomas Macaulay, was charged with picking a language. You know, how do you decide what language the natives are going to be taught in? And in this minute, um, which is a, it's a short document, he goes through them one by one and says, Arabic, no, you know, <laughs> nothing profound has ever been written in Arabic. You know, Sanskrit, no, that's a laugh. Persian, all the great Persian literature can't fill one shelf. You know, it will be English because that is the most civilized language. So, you know, we talk about this now from a great distance and, you know, we speak in English, obviously, so that says its own thing. But I think, my, you know, my grandfather was of the generation that lived very closely to those decisions. Um, okay, not as close as the 1800s, but I think they lived through the degradation of empire and imperialism up close. And so, you know, I didn't know my grandfather. I only knew him through my, my father's memories, my family's memories. And really through his library. And what I always found fascinating about his library was that it was, I mean, to use the parlance of the day, a decolonized library. You know, James Baldwin. James Baldwin was one of his favorite writers, and that's where I discovered Baldwin. Um, he had sections devoted to Africa, to South America, to Asia. And the section devoted to America, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of small shelf. Well, not a small shelf, I mean, but compared to his library, it's, a, it's the kind of shelf that I could fit into my room, you know, whereas I can't fit my grandfather's books into my room. There just wouldn't be enough space. So he was someone very much geared towards that moment, that Bandung moment, third world, unity and solidarity, um, a rising up of the global south. And it, it does sound like a faraway idea. But I think whether you're looking at Pakistan or you're looking at even Americans at the time, there was so much hope in that. You know, even Malcolm X spoke of, of being in Cairo and what it meant as a young Muslim to be in Cairo, to be really in the heart of Africa, of the Muslim world, when your home was not free. I think it's really interesting to try to live in the, I want to say romanticism, but that feels wrong. It's not romanticism of the moment. It was a vision they had. And I, what you said about the Pakistan People's Party's slogan about democracy and socialism and Islam and power to the people, that needs to be unpacked. And maybe we can talk about this in the context of democracy in Pakistan. The way I see it, like this was an interesting time and his vision and his ideas got mutilated. One thing I noticed in Pakistan that was, it was shocking to just hear it talked about in such a banal way 
when I was I was living there, we there would be of course there's servants, the servant like you know, I was like I gotta go back to my village to go vote, and I said, oh, who are you gonna vote for? He says, well, I, I don't know yet. Whatever the brotheri decides, the politicians come and they, the, whoever gives the better deal, whoever pays more money, like we we just go with them. That's how it goes. We have a block of a thousand votes or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, and that's just the way of the world there. So what is democracy in Pakistan? Like, what is, how can you have that in, in that kind of country? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, the way in which my grandfather envisioned it, he said the purpose of democracy is to bring about the flowering of society and to know the inner thoughts of the people without fear. To me, that's a very moving description of what democracy ought to be. He came to power as first democratically elected head of state. And in my lifetime, certainly, I don't think there has been any flowering of society in Pakistan. And I don't think the people feel that they can speak their inner thoughts without fear. You know, even people like myself, who have every privilege that can be afforded to people in Pakistan, um, live with a constant fear that comes from, from <laughs> revealing your inner thoughts. I think that there's so many things to unpack in that, Imran. But the first thing I would say is that to vote in Pakistan is not a right. Um, it is, in fact, um, it is a privilege. It's a luxury. You pay for it because to vote in Pakistan, you need a Shanakhti card. And a Shanakhti card is not free. So it's not like um, America where you turn 18 and you get a Social Security card. I mean, I don't know if you pay for them. I don't think you do. Do you? Maybe just like a processing fee at the Department of Motor Vehicles, like $12 or something, perhaps, yeah. So in Pakistan, if you want to get a Shanakhti card and you turn 18, you've got to go to um, the Nadra office. Now, um, you might go to the Nadra office. It might, it might, You may not have a Nadra office in your village. You know, You may have to travel to another village or another town to go to the Nadra office. Um, mm -hmm. So obviously this limits women's movement just immediately from the get-go. Then you've got to answer a whole slew of questions. You've got to be fingerprinted. And the questions range from the obvious, like what's your birth date, to like to very strange questions. You know, I was asked um, when I was renewing my Shanakhti card a couple of years ago, I was asked if I had a twin. And I remember thinking the guy was joking and I asked him, what kind of a question? What kind of a question is that? And he said, "Oh, it's just in case someone turns up who looks like you to vote twice." Hmm. So, anyways, you answer these questions, some of which are absurd, and then uh, you you have to pay. You've you've got to hand over not an insignificant amount. I mean, at one thousand eight hundred rupees, two thousand rupees. That's uh, a salary for some people. It's prohibitive, yeah. and Im imagine if you have um, five children. And you want them all to get Shanakhti cards. Imagine if you have four sisters um, and, you know, you're the head of the family. That's an incredible amount to have to pay. You know, then you've got to go back to pick up your Shanakhti card. Um, you know, if, by the way, they didn't fill in the form correctly, they may call you back just to do the fingerprinting. again. I mean, it's not a simple process. And what it does is it makes it incredibly difficult for people. To so from the start, we have a problem because we don't make it easy for our citizens uh, to exercise not just their democratic uh, duty, but frankly, you know, what do you do if you don't have a Shanakhti card? How do you open a bank account? You can't, you know. How do you get yourself a job in the formal economy? You can't. You'll have to live and work informally. 
How do you register for school? You don't. You know, how do you book travel? You can't. And and so it, it, it essentially keeps a huge amount of our population outside the very functioning of society. Hmm. It seems like there's a there's a link to be made, not a direct link, but the structuring of American society where you have this historical class of people who were enslaved and laborers that are still fighting for recognition. There's two Americas, there's two polices, you know, there where there's you know, one one class calls the police for help and the other runs from the police. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's in, the same. <laughs> that's yeah. that's so familiar. I mean in in Pakistan, at least, I can't ever say I've ever met a policeman with anything but fear. You know, people don't call the police for help. They call their neighbors for help. They call their friends for help. Um, the police are a mercenary force. Um, and I, I mean, I think this is a global thing. I think so many of these things are global. And one of the things that really struck me about watching the protests in America um, through June and um, the last few weeks was that um, I read somewhere that predator drones that that ordinarily surveil the U.S. Canadian border were called were called back and were brought to surveil the protests and were flown over cities where you had big protests. And to me, that was just such a revealing news story. You know, that's exactly why Americans should care about predator drones that are sent to fly over Pakistan and Afghanistan and Somalia and whatever else. Because, you know, they're not just using them against us. They're going to use them against you, too. They are. And the same tools of, of violence, the same tools of surveillance, the same tools of oppression. I mean, you know, those are not going to be restricted to places far away from home. They'll use them on home if they need to as well. Yeah, it strikes me that um that and this is why i really wanted to talk about your grandfather is is that we live in a we're living in through a moment where it feels like revolution is possible it feels like people are waking up and they're organizing and they're it uh, po possibly you know my thought is that this is because of covid because people just have time and they kind of have checked out from the to some degrees to various degrees from the economy that keeps you distracted busy tired working all the time now you have time to sit and just reflect on the situation as it is and so things like george floyd's murder they're just emblematic of something that has been going on for 400 years yeah i think it's a it's an also an interesting time to your point to bring consciousness to global struggles to people that are checking in for the first time with these 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 revolutionary ideas also look at the fact that there's been a a foreign um, policy, as we call it, the euphemism that we call foreign policy, uh, that has, you know, it's that's also been part of this economic model, this economic you know structure of of what this powerful nation is about. You know, I think that that turning period that I keep referring to where your where your grandfather's assassinated is like it's there's a replacement of democracy, socialism, Islam as our religion, power power to the people with Allah arm the army in America. And what does that mean? You know, can you can you sort of speak to that? Yeah. Well, I mean that you know, that period nineteen seventy nine is such a 
cataclysmic year in, in so many parts of the world. So many things are um, fractured in that period. So much seems to hinge on that period. At that point, you have the Americans using Pakistan's CIA-backed dictator, General Ziaul Haq, to fight in Afghanistan for them, to fight the communists in Afghanistan, to arm, you know, obviously what is now the, the Taliban, to train them, to support them, and to fund them, you know, they didn't grow in a vacuum. And it's quite, I mean, I think what you said earlier is so interesting. I'm not sure it's that we were distracted by the demands of the economy alone. I think it's also that COVID has allowed us, because we are stuck inside, to think more about things and also to study more about things. So, you know, when if you're roaming around 2000 and, well, whatever it is, 2001, and America invades Afghanistan, you know, I don't remember there being a huge amount of consciousness over who exactly the Taliban were. Whereas today we seem to be connecting so much more the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, all these people um, were not just fighting racial oppression at home. They were talking about imperialism yeah. abroad. But essentially it's that period in the the late 1970s where Pakistan, that that promise to its people is, is, is shattered. You have a military dictator that takes over. He is funded and celebrated by um, the West, by England, by France, by America. And so, of course, his repressions at home don't matter. And Zia does, and not only does he brutalize the country by virtue of the military junta, but he does certain things. So, for example, he enacts incredible censorship, um, which means that all the television news, all the newspapers, in those days you had evening papers and morning papers, were subjected to censorship checks, um, very rigorous censorship checks. This is a period in our history where journalists who flouted censorship rules were publicly whipped, were flogged in stadiums. You have mass arrests of student organizers. You know, universities in Pakistan um, have always been hotbeds of political activism, of organizing, of politics. And it's in Zia's time when these student leaders are really rounded up by the thousands and jailed. You have laws enacted against minorities, against women. You know, the Hudud laws. All these laws are still on the books. The blasphemy laws. The blasphemy laws that people know of in Pakistan today, those are a creation of General Zia's. And that's where you go from Islam is our religion to this very Wahhabi, brutal definition um, of, of religion. And I don't think Pakistan's ever recovered from that. We've never undone Zia's laws. They remain on the books. They remain in practice. You still have elements, obviously, um, in terms of the fact that Pakistan was moved away from bilateral relations very closely to the American orbit. I mean, I think that's changing now. We, we, we have seen that change in the last few years, and I think we will see more changes. But something incredible is disarticulated in Pakistan because of that. And, and it, it remains disarticulated. So that our current prime minister... Imran Khan, you know, has army support. He's got great army support. And it remains to be seen whether you can lead the country without the blessings of the military. So far, the answer would look like, no, you can't. I mean, I say this, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. But but I do think that, um, as in all places, the struggles that you see... Um, 
taking place are not always going to be the big struggle that changes everything. And I think we have to be careful of some kind of fatigue or some kind of breaking of hope because anytime people gather and they speak out, we imagine that they're going to upend systems. And I think the business of upending systems is generational. I think it takes it takes decades. It doesn't happen over years. And so even in Pakistan, I think you see a lot of important work being done. Um, in the same way, I think these protests in America are so hopeful for the direction in which they seem to be heading. But I think it's unfair to imagine that they will they will end unfair systems in in months or or even in you know a year i think that work is going to take a long time tell us a little bit about that hopeful work happening in pakistan so we can have a little exhale <laughs> <laughs> well i think you know i think in a strange way it's always going to come out of turbulence it's always going to come out of ugliness you know if we just look at the war on terror which, you know, I think people outside of Pakistan or people maybe in America, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of have forgotten. But, you know, the war on terror, um, if you look at the disappearances, if you look at the people picked up in the middle of the night um, and sent to interrogation bases, renditioned, you know, there are still families grieving with those losses. But while that was going on, it wasn't journalists that were um, breaking those news stories for us. It was the families of the disappeared. It was the sons and the brothers and the sisters and the daughters and the wives of those men who stood at roundabouts and who stood outside the Supreme Court with the pictures of their loved ones. Who They stood outside press clubs. And, and you know, by the way, also, it wasn't just that America was disappearing people. But, you know, they had given the army at that time. We had another dictator in charge, General Pervez Musharraf. And so, you know, the dictatorship took free reign and were using that that blanket to, to do their own work. Right. I think those families were incredibly brave to do what they did. I think, again, if we look at stories like the story of Mukhtar Mai, you know, who many people will be familiar with, the woman who was gang raped um, by the powerful men in her village, it wasn't... Um, really, you know, the New York Times who broke that story, it was it was the local mullah had heard about it and spoke to his his mosque about it. He spoke to how it was um, not just a sin to have done, but it was the greatest crime that those men had enacted upon Mukhtar Mai. That's why we know what happened to her. You know, and we only hear the bad stories that come out of mosques. We don't hear the good stories, and that's certainly one of the good ones. I think that there's a lot of young women who are trying to build connections through things like the Oret March. You know, there are women in Lahore and Islamabad and Karachi and in the major cities who are trying to reach out um, to other cities, to women who live in other neighborhoods, who speak other languages than them, and try to come together to build some kind of discourse of what it means to be women. So I think all those things are in incredibly hopeful. I mean, I find them very sustaining. Um, even if they're set uh, against a backdrop of, you know, raging inequality and 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 fear. It reminds me um, of your own work. Your first major book, of course, was Songs of, and, of Blood and Sword. And it's looking at the specters of your life, your grandfather, your father, your aunt, your also your uncle, 
murdered in, 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 in awful ways, but you're able to deal with it in a human, in a, you know, in a way, if you look, I, I've always thought about you as, uh, as an interesting figure amongst your family, because obviously people make connections between your family and other political dynasties, and you've always warned people to to not do that because it gives them a, a type of cultural power that they they don't deserve these are human beings and you know you know that because you know them as family members um, but for others they they're these emblems of something and they're always meant to be something and then now you also have cousins who are engaging in politics and trying to adopt the a cloak of whatever that is or just adopt the language and adopt that without any true knowledge of who those people are who speaking the language of Sindhi farmers and, and and never having spent any time with them it's not real it's not the it's not the ppp of, of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto that's for sure um, but I'm also seeing that not to load this up with too much, but just what you were talking about with the war on terror being forgotten, because it is forgotten. But it also that reminds me of the people that are living in the in the shadow of that are, you know, similarly to you, you you're living in the shadow of this personal tragedy. People are living in the shadow of that culturally, personally and culturally. But then we also live in the shadow of colonialism and of course, I'm reminded by the quote that I'm pretty sure you're the one that that uh, made me wise to this quote. But a man's struggle against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Milan Kundera. Yeah, absolutely. I've always thought that that said so much that one line of Milan Kundera's. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we live wherever we are in a culture of amnesia and a culture um, um, that supports forgetting of distraction and a culture of the self, you know, that's always pushing us to some kind of performance, some kind of public performance or visibility. Of course, this is made so much worse with social media that requires of us a great amount of energy in signaling, but not in living and, and not in doing and not in remembering. But uh, what do we do with that? I, I don't know. I think part of it is in understanding or in empathy for the difficulties of others. I think that one of the weird things of lockdown um, and this social distancing that we all have to do now is that it's going to have to make us much more tender in our speech, in our conversation. I hope it makes us more tender. I hope it, it makes us think more about what others go through and how we can reach out to others without proximity, without closeness, without things like that. Just going back to what you started um, that point with, I mean, one of the things I always liked um, about Malcolm X, and I always loved um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, I think it's one of the great political journeys, um, and I think it's one of the great autobiographies because it's so honest and so introspective is he said when he was asked, um, you know, when he was becoming more and more of a political figure um, rather than a spokesman, he was asked what, you know, 
what qualified him. And he said very clearly that he had no special education to be a politician. He said he had no special training. He had no university degree in politics, but, but that he was sincere. And that his sincerity is the only thing he could offer is his credibility. And I think that's important. I think that's so important, especially in the age that we live in now of experts. Everyone's an expert on everything. <laughs> but I do think sincerity counts for something. I think the ability to learn counts for something. And I guess that's what I've tried at least to hold myself accountable to in, in whatever way I can. It's apparent. Your sincerity is apparent, and I would say your your sincerity is your credential, as Malcolm That's wrote. Really kind of you. What I'm trying to get at is that we we need a story, we need a narrative of of history that makes sense to understand where we are, and there are many conflicting narratives, and um, you know, and many people, academics have worked on this, you know, or. Orientalism is a type of narrative, a piece of a colonial narrative. Um, there's also religious narratives that are, you know, and I'm, I'm really curious about this period of your life because you grew up in Damascus, a, a place that is now in, in, in a type of cultural and religious um, milieu that is no longer there for people, but it lives in the memory at least of the people that I've met, um, it lives in the memory of people as this great bastion of uh, Islamic scholasticism and of like a great, uh, like the ulama class where they're studying um, the Islamic sciences and uh, they have a beauty and of, of language and culture and law and discourse what was that like for you from your perspective growing up there just as a child? Well, I always say I was incredibly lucky to have spent my childhood in Damascus because what a gift to spend uh, your early years, you know, your first years in life in, in the world's oldest continually inhabited city. You know, every stone is rich with, legacy and with heritage and with beauty and with mm. to be taken on class trips to the Umayyad mosque, you know, which is not just a incredibly beautiful mosque, but um, John the Baptist's head is said to be buried. I think it's under the stones of Umayyad. Um, and, and also to be surrounded by Arabic, I mean, spoken in its most beautiful form. But at the same time as that was true, I was there as an exile. And so that colored some some of that. Um, I was too young, obviously, to really fully understand what it meant to be an exile. But I, my father um, was incredibly homesick. And in the 16 years that he was in exile, uh, most of which was in Damascus, but but some in Afghanistan too. He always carried his home heavily. And so I understood there was something sad about exile. Um, and I absorbed that sorrow of his, even if I didn't understand fully what it, what it meant. So there was a shadow over it. Um, but Damascus was my first home, and it, it was always the home I imagined I would be allowed to have because Pakistan was so 
tense and uh, forbidden at points and dangerous at others. Damascus was a was a sanctuary. It was a place where I felt where I belonged, even if <laughs> even if I wasn't Syrian. I did think I was for quite a period. And you're right. It's a place too big to live in your memories, but if that's the only way you can have it now, then that's the way one has to carry it, I suppose. I wanted to ask you because, you know, I've had uh, I've had a varied life, mm. you could say. You know, I've grew up in, you know, around the east coast of the United States and then came to Pakistan as a medical student at age 18, right after 9-11. Um, I complete my studies there and I return, I join a band which you're yeah. familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, kind of in a lot of confusion, I, I, I think I left to Pakistan in a, in a great confusion about who I was and what I was. And I adopted a type of framework to understand the world and understand myself in the world. Um, and it kind of came crashing down in the uh in the earthquake it, that was the first kind of blow to my very secular uh worldly perspective where i would see patients who were um one in particular you know i walked into his room he had lost both of his legs and he just had these very large fleshy stumps or not fleshy, but actually there was no skin on them. And he was sitting upright in bed, a uh, young man, maybe 22 mustache, yeah. you know, like a fruit seller from Balakot. Yeah. Uh, he, he, uh, I asked him how you were doing. He's smiling ear to ear. Alhamdulillah. Like so happy to be alive. He's not, and he's he's mind you he's not like delirious he's not he's he's completely cogent and and, and it, it it's it was like a missile to my heart yeah where it's just like what something is going on inside this man that i i don't relate to i can't understand like i i just can't do that and um i didn't didn't sort of make sense of it until many years later um and now I, religion is the only way that I can make sense of the world. Um, you have been, having been through so many varied experiences and seen so many different things, tragedies and, and just culture and society. Um, how, how do you make sense of the world? To tell you the truth, I'm still learning how to make sense of the world. I haven't found fully the way of making sense of what is so unfair and so cruel about the world. Um, I think when the world is hard to you, you can understand it more easily and, and, and adapt yourself to new ideas and submit yourself to new ideas in order to survive. But when the world is cruel to others, it's harder to bear. I mean, the idea of even what we're all living through now, it seems so incredibly cruel um that half of us can be afford you know can afford to lock down at home and the other half of the world if they don't work one day will starve so it's not that i have an answer necessarily part of part of i think surviving my pain was to understand that 
it was not unique, that it was not singular, that it belonged to um, pain everywhere. And when I understood the loss that I faced and the grief that I had as something much larger, as pain that was felt by many, many others outside of myself, that, that allowed me to see it differently in some ways. I think also in letting go of the idea of the self, I mean, sorry to sound kind of abstract and annoying, but I think there's so much pain in, in the idea of the self because it forces us to defend this totally abstract, intangible thing that we think means something or is significant um, and has to be propped up all the time. Um, letting go of that idea has been enormously helpful to me. Does that make sense? Mm. How how do you let go of your sense of self, or how do you understand yourself of sense of self? I think by understanding that you are there is no self. There is no there is no self. I mean, I'm not the same person I was ten years ago. I'm not the same person I was ten days ago. I'm not even the same person I was ten minutes ago because. What I am is just a confluence of different thoughts that are swirling around at any given time. And I, if I attach to one of them, that's what causes pain. You know, If I attach to the idea of myself as someone who suffered, then I'll always be suffering. Um, if I define myself as someone who experienced X or Y, then I'll always have to live through that. Um, and I, I think it is something quite Asian. I mean, I think it's something very ingrained in our part of the world. You know, we don't really have concepts of time. I mean, you know, people will always credit um, Buddhists, of course, with uh, with this with this line of thinking, the no time, no self line of thinking. But I think it's present in Sufism. It's present in Hinduism. It's present. Um, of course, in Buddhism, which comes from our part of the world. And I think surrendering to that line of thinking has been something that's helped me enormously. I'll give you an, a less abstract example. I, I suffered a very long time with the idea of justice because I believed I believed that what happened to my father, who I adored and, and, and who was killed outside of my front door, um, my father is killed on the road that any time I leave my house, I've got to walk on that road. I've got to drive on that road. I can't escape the memory of where my father was killed. And I suffered for so long because his killers were uh, free, because they were not punished, because they were promoted. They were given a job. They did that job. And they rose and rose and rose in the ranks of the police and the, in the hierarchy of power in my country. And they seemed to have no limit to their rise. And so first I placed this idea and the idea of justice in in the face of the law. And I thought, okay, there's no justice in power because these men keep having power. But one day they will have, um, they will face the court's justice. And of course, there's no such thing as the court's justice in Pakistan. Um, the, the courts are so compromised and so corrupted um, that eventually they were set free. So the courts ultimately decided that nobody killed my father and his six comrades who were killed with him. 
and all the men were, were cleared. So then I didn't have court's justice. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have the justice of memory. <laughs> so I wrote Songs of Blood and Sword. And I kept suffering because I believed in this idea of justice as singular, as one kind of justice. And actually, at some point, it occurred to me that if I was to have the justice I felt I deserved, then someone else's daughter would suffer. And I thought, there is one difference between me and the men who killed my father, which is that I would never do that to someone's daughter. I would never put someone else's daughter what I went through. And so I had to rethink what justice meant. Um, I had to rethink what uh, my father's loss meant. I had to rethink me. And um, if I was going to be the Fatima who was chasing justice and I defined myself that way, I would have destroyed myself um, because I'd be chasing a completely impossible thing, um, an unmanageable idea, an untenable idea. And so I had to change my way of thinking. And eventually I realized, quite belatedly, but thankfully, that so long as I'm here, my father's here. Hmm. And that, that will be the justice I have. That while I'm alive and while I'm talking and walking and speaking, uh, he's speaking. And his killers will have to face that, <laughs> you know, in places they don't expect. They didn't erase him. I'm here. So these little things, um, these little insights, which take untold amount of time and uh, grief, have helped me make sense of things. But I'm, I'm not... I'm not done. I'm still I'm still learning how to make sense of lots of things. Yeah, it's very that was a very beautiful answer. There's a metaphysical idea at the heart of it which is that you are not yourself or that you are not you know you're you're a con, uh you're you're doing these actions in the world. Yeah. And the second you attach yourself to a certain yeah. idea of yourself, you're you're, you're essentially destroyed. That's one thing. And then the, it's like a weight, you know, it's like putting a weight on your shoulders. What for? And imagine for you that that weight is is such an unbearable weight to hold. Um, but then to take this idea of justice and to land on mercy is another deeply religious idea. The Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, like mercy is twice said in that. Uh, it, it said once, and then it said with with emphasis on the second time, "You were sent uh, as uh, you were sent as nothing but a mercy to mankind." It said about the prophet, um, you know this this idea. Um, so many so many sort of, and I think it's interesting. You know, we one of the great injustices of of the colonial. Um, cultural project is that they took away humanism from us you know but we were the great humanists um and we brought we we gave them their colleges you know george mcdesey's work the rise of colleges the rise of humanism um you know good scholarly works that kind of point us to this fact that you know you took it from us and then you make us feel like we're the barbarians (laughs) 
so it's just interest, interesting how these religious ideas are are taken and and take and then kind of put into other contexts and then weaponized against the religious. Absolutely, and that's that's the lasting scar of of colonialism is the way in which they degrade your memory and your understanding um, and the heritage of your people. But I think really one of the profoundest lessons of religion is that, is that surrender. I think all religions ultimately ask us, whatever religion we're talking about, to surrender that um, that trophy of the self, you know, that, that idea of ourselves as significant. Um, and they ask us to surrender that to much larger, um, more encompassing, more beautiful ideas. And, and I, I wish... I wish it was I wish that was clearer. I wish I wish we knew how to do that better. Well, similarly to the the idea of political stories and cultural stories that we have, we also have a lot of religious stories and it's hard to find one that that actually fits. And for me, that's been a great trial of my life um in the past 7 years and even currently finding this the story that fits because there are many people there are many storytellers but uh <laughs> very few like this the story never seems to be big enough um it always seems to be pointing to a type of self you know it's and now we're talking about an abstract self um an abstract self of a religious community an abstract self of a nation an abstract self of uh, whatever have you, it's always a type of, um, you know, Tamim Ansari has an interesting book about history that he wrote recently about like his, he's looking at the view of history from the sense of like, it's about opening up your borders and then closing the ranks. It's just a, this kind of like inhale, exhale of like, let people in and I'll close the borders. And there's a type of like strength in opening and a strength in closing, um, which is, uh, I think it really, it, it's a, it's an interesting way to look at politics and kind of, and, and religion and all of these things, you know, how we, how we make these groups. And also I think, um, and you mentioned it earlier as well, where you said we need narratives. I think that's the beauty of this whole thing, which is that life is long and there are so many stories. Some of them will fit some of the time, some will fit later, some will come back to us. Um, and we can be led by infinite stories because we come from cultures of stories and we'll never be storyless. I don't think, I don't think we'll ever be storyless. So in your cultural journalism of uh, the new kings of the world, I'm curious to ask you about sort of your appraisal of all things. I mean, Dizzy is an interesting one to me, of course, because we're talking about, um, and you made this connection that it's really like about, uh, you know, a return to, um, I kind of see it on one, on one hand, you can kind of see it's a, it's a celebration of the Muslim ego. That's kind of a cynical view. Um, uh, on another hand, you can see it as a, as a, a performance of a type of traditional life that has been lost. You know, you see beautiful brotherhood. You see 
you know, people really sticking sticking by their ideals. Like even the the kings um, will be moved to tears by someone who has a dream of the prophet or something like this. You know, uh, you see a different view of society, which I think is actually profound um, because the current structuring of society is so tyrannical and it's so um, it's so utilitarian and it's in uh, when we think about the global economy, you know, it's it's everything is transactional in nature. Uh, I mean, even and you're you're a writer and, you know, going to book festivals and there's an industry around all of these things. And it's not just a yeah we, we we traffic in ideas and beauty and all these things, but we also capitalize on those things, and uh, and that's just a way of things. So like to present an alternative to that in such a in such a hugely invested way, where it's not about it's actually not it's not it's almost like you're not even it's not about the narrative that they're giving. They it they by the very structuring of the content that it's like each episode is like two hours it's actually that you can live in that world you can just go live there it's not about it's about live but being with them and like having companionship with them more than it is about um this is a narrative that you need to understand so maybe we can talk about that first well that's i mean i think that's the power of film is is the fantasy is that it allows you access to this fully formed fantasy um, and all you need to do is step into it. You don't need to make it. You, you just need to believe it. Um, and, and absolutely, Dizzy, I think your assessment is quite correct. There is um, one part of it that is, of course, a, a, a telling of Turkish history. I mean, it, we, we shouldn't confuse it um, with, with a straight factual telling. I mean, this is, um, you know, Ottoman Sultan through the beloved's eyes rather than through um, the people who were turned into colonies' eyes, obviously. Um, and the other part of it is, of course, um, yeah, I mean, it's an industry. It has the same crass and commercial impulses of, of any industry. Um, they understand in a profound way, though, how to marry those commercial instincts with political instincts. And I think the genius of Dizzy is that even as Turkey faces its own clash between secular Turkey and Erdogan's, uh, let's say, Muslim Brotherhood-inspired vision of Turkey, um, the Dizzy's are able to portray both. Dizzy's are large enough to tell both of those stories. Um, if you look at two in particular, Magnificent Century, which was a story of um, Sultan Suleiman. Um, that was told by the sort of secular side of the Turkish industry, let's say. And so it was a story of Turkish territorial expansion, but not so much uh, a story of Islam, not so much the story of a Muslim king. It, it certainly was there, but it was a love story, you know, so it's really about him and Hurem, the concubine who he eventually marries. I think it had good moments, you know, they're great moments in um, Magnificent Century of, you know, the Hungarian king or the, you know, the Vatican, and they're really kind of malevolently portrayed. Um, 
especially in the way in which they look down on Muslim powers. But if you compare that to Ertegrul, um, which is very much the story of Islam and a Muslim uh, warrior and a, a Muslim victor, um, and it's not told from the secular perspective, it's told from a religious perspective. It's the most popular thing um, in Dizi right now. I mean, they're building statues to Ertegrul in Lahore. Um, you know, I mean, people take it incredibly seriously. And I, I think that's part of the, that's, that's why I'm impressed by the Dizzy industry, because um, they didn't shut one story down to tell the other. I think, but, hmm. but that's not necessarily because they're so noble. That's also because it commercially, it's so valuable. Um, right. You know, so let's not forget um, the power of money and capitalism. But but yeah, I think you have both in play, and I think that's what makes it interesting at the moment. I mean, it continues to be interesting, um, even though it's you know we're sort of ten, fifteen years into the whole thing. Yeah. So then, Bollywood and Modi, what's the deal with this? Well, you know, I said in New Kings of the World that Bollywood is a great lens; it's a great mirror um, to view Indian society because the story of India is told so well through the decades, through its films. You know, if you look at the 1950s, all the Raj Kapoor films, they encompass that romantic nationalism that Nehru and the Nehruvian government embodied, that idea of utopian possibilities, the, po the possibilities of brotherhood. Um, all the heroes are small, struggling men, but they, they survive because of their great hope in the, in the possibilities of the nation. And then you go to the 1970s and the Amitabh Bachchan heroes. But by this point, India's romance with the possibilities of its future have been corroded because of corruption, because of all kinds of things. And so now the Amitabh Bachchan hero is still a small, struggling man. I mean, he's not a big man in the sense of an industrialist or, you know, um, a hedge funder. He's a shoeshine boy. Um, but he's mm. up against power and he may not win, but he'll fight and he'll fight for what he sees as his absolute right to be treated with dignity and with respect, even in a corroded, toxic world. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go into, you know, and that's, that's also true for the 80s, I think. And then you go into the 90s and you no longer have the heroes of Bollywood films who are poor men. They're now only rich men. You know, I mean, I remember watching Bollywood as a child and just you want to cry within the first 10 minutes because it's always about an orphan, you know, who's homeless. And that's gone by the 1990s. Now, you know, he's a multinational consultant. He's a banker. He has a BMW. He speaks English. He travels. He goes to Switzerland and New York and all these kind of things. And that's the same time that India undergoes neoliberal economic reforms. And now since Modi, you have the same um, dark specter, I think, taking over the films. I mean, you, of course, with notable exceptions. But look at films like Uri, you know, which was a war film. Um, what I find very interesting is that the Modi era is always raring to go against Pakistan. You know, they're always thrilled to make films where Pakistan is the villain. There's a film coming out, I think, in a couple of months, or maybe even sooner than that, called The Cargill Girl. 
you know, about a female pilot, where they couch these kind of female empowerment stories, but always through jingoism and this ultra-muscular nationalism. So it's about a female pilot during the Kargil War. They, they're happy to do that with Pakistan. I don't think there's going to be a, a spate of Bollywood movies about China. You know, if we're watching mm. a, the Galwan Valley and what's been happening <laughs> in Ladakh, I really don't think Karan Johar has it in him to make a movie where the Chinese are the villains. You know, so Bollywood reaches usually for low-hanging fruit. I mean, let's let's be fair. They're not necessarily going to go for the big, bold choice. That they're, they're following the mood of the moment. And that mood is sometimes hopeful. That mood is sometimes dark. I think certainly with Modi, you have you have it at its darkest. Um, you know, this is a man who, you know, allowed a movie to be made about him and wanted to release it like a week before the elections. Um, so his sort of um, need to be celebrated, I think, commingles with Bollywood's need to be able to do what they like. Um, and there's a, a strange circularity of psychophancy and not just mirroring the language of the government, but actively seeking their support. And I, I think that will damage Bollywood. I think that's the, the difference between Turkey and India is that, sure, there might be elements close to the government that make TV shows, but the guys who are the most popular, the guys who are the, the big leaders of the industry are not calling up the government saying, what film would you like us to make next? Whereas that certainly looks like the case in India at the moment. Of course, with exceptions, but yeah. yeah, yeah I, I was going to ask if Amir Khan, Khan is an exception in your mind. No, in my mind, he's not. Amir Khan um, has been a cheerleader for Modi. You know, Amir Khan um, defended demonetization, you know, where literally overnight the Modi government took something like 80% of India's currency out of circulation. The people who were the most hit by that move were the poor. Um, you know, poor people died in lines outside of banks trying to get their life savings out of banks before their money turned to to worthless dust. And Amir Khan came out to defend um, demonetization, saying it didn't really affect him because he mainly used credit cards. I think, unfortunately, Amir Khan has not stood against the dark tide of the BJP. I mean, neither mm. have uh, Salman Khan or Shah Rukh Khan. If we're looking as at anyone, um, you know, I think certainly there are there are certain um, actresses or or voices who have been critical, um, but by and large, you know, I saw a lot of Bollywood stars coming out to say Black Lives Matter. I never heard <laughs> them say Dalit Lives Matter. You know, I never heard them come out for Dalits or for Muslims or for students, those Jamia students who are being beaten by Latis, by, by policemen. So, you know, again, you look at, you know, Priyanka Chopra is always everyone's favorite example. But, you know, this is someone who in the West is positioned as this girl power, you know, minority, you know, minorities breaking through. You know, I'm a brown girl telling brown stories at, at home. Uh, you know, she's cheered for war um, in the February 2019 standoff between India and Pakistan. She was cheering for war. She invited Narendra Modi to her wedding. I mean, you know, she's appeared in Skin Lightning um, 
advertisements. I mean, so so the exceptions are are few and far between. I mean, I always mention Gully Boy as a as a good film, as a good breakaway from this dark moment. Um, Gully Boy is one of the few films that I've seen lately where you have a Muslim protagonist, um, where you see something of life outside of the metropolitan center, where you see someone who lives on the periphery of society, someone looked down on by the rich of society. Um, so Gully Boy, I think, brought back what was so powerful about Bollywood, what what made Bollywood so moving. But aside from that film, I can't really, I'd be hard pressed to give you like a second that I thought did the same. Yeah, it's just, it's it's a very interesting example to just look at Bo- Bollywood the way you're looking at it and, and kind of looking at the story. Of course, there's always been links to uh, movies and cultural power. I mean, propaganda in, in, in it, it's but it's never felt so in a way at least from my perspective it's never felt so bold-faced you know so so apparent so you know you know just because of how odious of a of, of a leader um this this man is uh, in india and and how he's kind of like linked to the type of fascism of trump and and of boris and and uh, it's just like this new type of strongman leadership uh, that that is is resurging, and then for culture to be coalescing around it um, in this way is is interesting. And then, of course, you go to K-pop, which is I feel like a completely different story. But uh, um, you know, Ziauddin Sardar, he he's there was a podcast that you were on, and and he they asked him for his analysis afterwards, and I. I just chuckled because he just said like, you know, K-pop is like this, uh, this um, almost like this conk, I can't remember what word he used, but just uh, this like concretization of like American um, just ideas and sort of like taking it to this extreme level, like on steroids. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's a bait and switch and it's born out of American popular culture. I mean, it's literally taking Western pop music and just speeding it up and dressing it up. Um, so it looks different, but you know, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing in that sense. But where I would say one has to look differently at K-pop is that you know, I think everyone looks, you know, people will make jokes about K-pop and, oh, it's so silly or, you know, oh, it's so industrialized and in how it's produced. You know, it's like the factory farming of music and all those things are true. Mm-hmm. And also they, they're not very fair because it assumes that American music is not factory farmed, you know, as though it doesn't have its own. It's not led by its own commercial impulses, which, of course, it is. But where I think K-pop and I would agree it is a. It is a kind of bait and switch. And it's a very clever bait and switch because it's one that studied the market, that knows what people like, how they like it, in what different ratios they need, sound, color, and dance. Mm. Um, so it's it's a very studious bait and switch. But at the same time, I just am so heartened by K-pop fans who are actually pretty politically engaged, you know. We've seen them, I mean, in one month, they, you know, they they overrode, um, what was it, all those um, 
sort of Nazi hashtags. I mean, they just took them over on Twitter so that nothing that these small hate groups were trying to trend in the wake of George Floyd's killing was seen by the Internet. They just subsumed them. And they did it like this incredibly organized swarm. That's a political that's a political thing to do, you know, to to reserve all the yeah. seats in the Tulsa rally. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. And and I, I've seen a lot of people mentioning this online. Um, I've seen a lot of people mentioning this online. And it's true. It's, it, it is interesting how when Iranian teenagers will will mess around with the Internet, um, you know, the White House will have a press conference and say we salute Iranian youth and their ability to use the internet for their freedom and but when k-pop fans do it then it's like oh it's a joke you know like oh k-pop fans pulled a big prank you know on the Trump rally that's not a prank you know that's that's organized movement that's power of the people that's power of the people so I think you know Imran we we let we end with this notion of K-pop bringing power to the people. But why not? Why not? I mean, if that's, um, if, if enough young people see no boundary between art, music, culture, and politics, then why should the rest of us? Right, right. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing place to to wrap this up thank you so much for your time and uh no thank you so much for for inviting me to talk to you and um i hope the next time we meet will be in a library again you can find fatima Bhutto at f Bhutto on Twitter and Instagram. Check out her book, Songs of Blood and Sword, New Kings of the World, and her most recent book, The Runaways. This episode of American Submitter and Submitter Magazine was produced by myself, Imran Ali Malik, Farooq Chaudhry, and Zahra Park. Submitter Magazine is an independent production that relies on your support. We are new and small, so your consideration to become a patron of our work is appreciated greatly. Go to patreon.com slash submitter or join us by simply clicking on the link in the show notes. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.